There, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who like the relentless futility, heat, pressure, uh, the madness, uh, the, the, the insanity uh, of, 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 of restaurant kitchens. And, and then there's everybody else, you know, normal people. Welcome to Friends of Anthony Bourdain, a podcast where we talk to friends, travel companions, and colleagues of Anthony Bourdain uh, to learn what it was like behind the scenes working with Anthony Bourdain. I'm one of your co-hosts, Fabrizio Villapondo. I'm a recipe developer and I make cooking videos online, and I am an ex-clumsy waiter who's worked in the restaurant industry for about over a decade now. And I'm your other co-host, Emily Fedner. I am a cook, host, and I run a pasta pop-up in New York City. Today, we had the distinct pleasure of speaking to Sarah Moulton, who is a culinary TV icon of decades. Um, she's done thousands of live cooking shows and knew Anthony Bourdain in the 90s? After the book, after Kitchen Confidential, mm. met but, Anthony Bourdain. But a fun little fact is, I guess they went to the same culinary school graduated uh, I believe she graduated one year before him and but they'd never crossed paths ships in the night but I guess uh, both of their legendary work would make them cross paths down the line and yeah she uh, actually has this beautiful little picture of where she gets featured uh, with Eric Repair and Anthony Bourdain that she shows us today Sarah's in the background behind tall chefs Anthony well Anthony Bourdain and Eric Repair and she is basically stuck behind them in a freezer. Anyways, it's iconic. There's a whole backstory to it, but you have to listen to the episode. And today we're, we talk in depth about, I would argue, one of our favorite things to talk about when me and Emily are just stumbling around New York City bars. We love talking about <laughs> the nightmarish stories that we've collected throughout the years of working in restaurants. And uh, there's actually a book uh, that Sarah shares with us called Don't Try This at Home. I'm taking that home. Yeah. Yes, we, we shared our kitchen nightmare stories and reminisced about the industry as a whole and, and how things have sort of the similarities between the current world that Fabrizio and I really occupy and uh, the celebrity chef world and online and, and uh, TV chef world. Mm -hmm. And uh, also we speak about uh, a few other legends, um, Julie Child and Jacques Pepin. Both of which had a, a strong impact yeah. on Sarah's career and who she was really good friends with. So um, we we definitely did not we definitely took liberties with how many questions we were. Yeah, we just we were had asking. a lovely long little chat, and uh, yeah, we. I mean, I, I felt like we we're about to just crack open a bottle of wine and. Keep I was about to say, can can we bring a bottle of wine next time? Can we bring one to the Absolutely. studio? Absolutely, I'll make sure of that. <laughs> yes, add that to your rider. We don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, without further ado, here is our conversation with the wonderful Sarah Moulton. We are very excited to speak with you today, and it's also so nice to have an in-person interview. So say this is our first in-person interview. Yeah. So. Really? It oh. is. Okay. No, I get that. And the energy is just amazing and completely different. I agree. Yes. So nice. Okay, Sarah. Well, I guess we'll start out with the reason we're here today, which is, uh, do you recall the first time you met Anthony Bourdain and what that was like? First impressions? Now, that's so crazy, because no, I don't. <laughs> Let me tell you the first time I was aware of him. I know it was 1999. He'd written the article in the New Yorker that was a, an excerpt from Kitchen Confidential. And in that year, I had two live shows on the Food Network, one from 7 to 8 and one from 10 to 11. And the one from 10 to 11 was called Kitchen Live Primetime. It was supposed to be a variety show where you're supposed to be drinking, having fun. And my producer was aware of Anthony invited him on. However, I wasn't there. It's one of those nights. So it was a live show, meaning live, live. Um, and occasionally the Food Network had me do, had needed me to do something else. So I wasn't there. So I don't even know who interviewed him. It, mm -hmm. The people, the boys had to fill in for me. I love this. Um, so it could have been Mario. It could have been Bobby. I don't know. Who, or it could have been David Rosengarten was hosting it. And I heard he was great, but I didn't meet him. So I don't really know. When I first met him, our paths crossed because he became, you know, famous overnight and because I worked at Gourmet Magazine. I was chef of the executive dining room. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of events with chefs and Anthony was all, often there. That was one, you know, so both the Food Network and also Gourmet Magazine, our paths just kept crossing. One story I wanted to tell, 
And again, yeah, I don't do. remember when I first met him. I mean, my God, he was tall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, you and I are the same. We're both like five feet tall. Yes, right. And, and he was what, 6'4"? I don't Yeah, he was like a huge. 6'4", I read. string bean. He yeah. was just big. Gangly and tall. Yeah, my my husband's 6'2", but Anthony, yeah, much more. But anyway. Especially like at that time, he was just like very thin and overworked. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I know. So I have a friend named Boris Kinberg, who was the drummer for Mink DeVille. So rock and roll, this all mm. makes sort of sense, right? And I, ca I called him up in advance of this podcast to confirm this, and he actually debunked it, but I don't care. I'm going to tell it the way <laughs> I remember it, okay? <laughs> so it's, again, right around when Kitchen Confidential came out, which I think is around 1999, mm -hmm. 2000. I think so. 2000. He was actually the dad of my daughter's best friend. And so he was over, and he, my husband, who's in the music business too, they liked each other a lot. I was talking about this book. Maybe Anthony had just been on, even though I didn't get to interview him or do anything with him. And I said, you got to read this book. You really do. And so he did. And then he decided he had a year off. Mink DeVille had to take some time off. He was going to go to cooking school and become a chef based on that book. And I was like, Boris, that is so, so, so counterintuitive. <laughs> you know, you read that book, you're like, this sounds like hell. It's terrible. Yeah. I, I can't well, believe it had that effect on a lot of people, though. Oh, I mean, yeah. It was au contraire. You know, it, it led people right into that hellhole. They're like, everyone gets, there's a lot of sexual harassment, and it's really hot. People do drugs, and there's a lot of cussing, and some people are criminals. Bring it on. Well, yeah. And it's, it's like how he describes it. It's like just a bunch of pirates just doing the craziest shit. I know. Wanted a sense of community in a way. Well, mm -hmm. it was also very rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about Anthony's, he was a manly man or he liked the tough guy image, smoking, drinking, partying, being tough, yeah. sticking it out. And hey, so, you know, and Boris is a sweetie pie, but you know, that's his world too. So maybe it makes sense. How he debunked it is he said, oh no, I went to cooking school anyway. And then I read the book. And I said, Boris, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> he said, well, maybe I read it twice, and I, I don't know. But at yeah. any rate, there's that. And then I mentioned to you the um, this book had come out, Don't Try This at Home, mm -hmm. which was a book about chefs making mistakes. What's the worst mistake? Or what's a terrible thing that you did that you I'm so excited to read done? this now. I, there's great stories in So it's there. just like a collection of short stories from all sorts, all of, sorts of chefs. Oh, I think there's like 20 chefs in there, and they're names that everybody knew at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was my generation of all the chefs. At any rate, so the people who were you know, publicizing this asked three of the people who were in there. I'm sure there was other chefs they worked with. So it was me and Eric Repair and Anthony, if we would do like a promo for mm -hmm. them for the book for New York Magazine. I was like, Sure. I get to be with these two guys. I, I probably knew Eric better than Anthony. Mm -hmm. Loved Eric. He's a real sweetie pie. At any rate, so I went over to Libernadam, and there the two of them are. As a matter of fact, I kept saying to Eric, what are you doing hanging out with this guy? He's a bad <laughs> influence. You know, that's back when I was bossy. I mean, I'm still bossy, but back then they listened to me, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I mean, I don't know if Anthony ever listened to me, but whatever. I, you know, I had a pub I had a show on the Food Network, so. No, you're like a, you're kind of a badass. So I was important back then. So and I, now, I just, and now. And I just said to them whatever I felt like it, you know. I, I just said whatever I wanted. I mean, for example, I used to tease Bobby Flay about why did he get, keep getting married? That's a really bad idea, Bobby. Just, you know, just Can have you not learn the first time, the second time? Just have Third time? Yeah, come on, you know. But anyway, so. <laughs> I, I think it's just good advice. It's not even really teasing. So that's just good advice. Yeah, I, I like. thought so. But whatever. I mean, he didn't seem to be mad. But at any rate, so I go to the restaurant and we're trying to figure out what to do to sort of bring together the, the whole idea of this book. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was, might have been Anthony's idea. He said, let's just lock Sarah in the freezer and make it look like, you know, she's stuck yeah. in there. And that's exactly what they did. Do you have that? Do you have, who has the page of the magazine? Oh. Oh, I did not realize you were literally locked in a freezer when I looked at that photo earlier. No, I was locked. I think my, my bags. Now I have to ask you, what is the worst cooking mistake you've ever made? Like, what's your contribution to the book? Oh, well, my contribution is actually a personal one. When you first go to cooking, so I went to the CIA mm -hmm. also, the Culinary Institute of America. And, and you actually graduated a year before Anthony? Yes. Right? Okay. yes but I you did not, uh, no one knew about it. 
about him. Okay. No, I didn't meet him. It's funny because how you miss people. You know, it just depends on actually who was in your tiny class. Yeah. We had 452 people in my class. It was a two-year program. Um, so he and I probably overlapped by a year, but I never mm -hmm. met him. But at any rate, anybody who goes to cooking school thinks they're a chef when they graduate, you know, even though they tell you every day, you're not a chef, you're not a chef, you're not mm -hmm. a chef. So you you walk around like you know everything. My husband, who was a really, really good cook at the time, he wasn't my husband when I went to cooking school, but I used to go over to his house. I went to University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and I'd go over to his house. He'd be making brisket, you know, really delicious brisket or whipping up an omelet or roasting a chicken or doing something. I mean, mm -hmm. he's very good. And Serious then I went cooking. To, and yeah, but then I went to cooking school and I told him he was doing everything wrong. Right. <laughs> and so he stopped cooking. He forgot everything. Oh, yeah. And now I would be so happy if he'd cook for me. If he'd just make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, would that you please? Nice. Uh, he does all the dishes. Yeah. But, um, oh, that's nice too. But at any rate, so it's Thanksgiving year one, maybe, I think. I go home. I go to my sister's. And my sister and I sort of had a competition. She's two and a half years older than me. You know, just growing up as two women and, you know. I have a twin sister. I fully get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm being Miss Bossy Pants as usual. And it's time to make the mashed potatoes. And um, so, you know, I boil everything I learned at school. You, you use the, you know, the russets, you boil them whole, you know, so you make sure that you don't get them watery, the water is salted, you cook them just till they're done, you drain them, you, you listen to my CIA training, you dry them in the pan. And then meanwhile, you're heating the milk or cream or whatever and softening the butter. And then you go and either use a potato masher, well, usually not a masher, but a, a ricer mm -hmm. or a food mill, right? My sister didn't have any of those things, nothing. I should have reached for a fork. What did I do? I put it in the food for, I knew you made the gummiest mashed potatoes ever. <laughs> that, if you have, Federico, you're a new cook, right? Oh, yeah. Like, well, you're two years? Right. Ever, so you wouldn't know this, but if you've been doing yeah. it for a while, if you do that, potatoes have such starch, and if you disturb their starch that much, That's the gloop, right? it is like wallpaper glue. Yeah. There is no way it will ever relax. And so um, my sister is just delighted. She's and like, I thought you were a chef, Sarah. Yeah. Didn't you learn something in school? Yeah. Oh. So I threw more and more butter and more and more cream in there. And um, that was the end of it. So that's my story. And Anthony's is about this horrible meltdown night. It wasn't really about him. Mm -hmm. It was more just a whole, whole like, just... You know, you're almost like this by the time you're done. It's a New Year's Eve and the chef didn't arrive and didn't bring the menu and all this stuff keeps arriving. They're trying to figure out what the heck to do with it. And, oh, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that keeps you awake at just night. Just the ticket machine screaming. I have anxiety just yes, thinking about this. that's exactly it. I've, I've had that experience from the perspective of a waiter. I think it was like Christmas Eve. The bartender didn't show up. A, wait, a waiter didn't show up. They're, they're like, ah, oh, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be slow. Sushi restaurant, it was just mania. It was the nightmare. I still wake up at night like, yeah, screaming yeah. because of it. We still relive yeah. that stuff. Just jumping in on Expo and just yeah. I feel like I want to read this book, but I feel like it is going to exacerbate a lot of my anxiety but, you know, and, and PTSD. No, no, I think it will. Eric's is, uh, he is very early on in his career and he's in France. And when you go to one of those schools, you know, this where they train you, mm -hmm. you have to pick a lane. Are you going to be front of the house or back of the house? Because they take front of the house every bit as, as seriously oh, wow. as back of the house. And he was still on the fence. And some very important person came in with his wife, like a colonel, some decorated guy in a fancy suit. And Eric tried to bring them drinks and ended up spilling drinks on them three times <sighs> all over their house. They're beautiful. He, the, the colonel and his wife. At any rate. It was fun revisiting this. So. Wait, I, I wish we could tell these stories forever oh, because there's so many. It's like, it's like all coming back, just the shock. I had that. Horror. It was a. It was a. We had an event. I was a server for many years of my life, on and off, and in between different jobs as well. And there was one night I worked at a fancy restaurant here in downtown Manhattan, and I believe we we're doing a private, like the this really fancy art gallery had bought out the entire restaurant and they would always kind of place me in the front with the tray of champagne flutes to like welcome Nightmare people as they came in Nightmare and I remember at one point I had to like go down the stairs by the way this restaurant was three floors I've never been in better shape you don't want to tell us the restaurant huh oh it was Chinese tuxedo downtown oh, really? oh. yeah I was a server there for yeah. a while great spot loved it celebrities and stuff were, would come there and it was it was just so amazing 
And I just remember there were two two in two champagne flute accidents I had. One was at the on the on the bottom floor, and I was holding it, and I just watched one glass slowly tip. It was like in slow mo. I will remember this forever. And you and the music had stopped or something, and the one glass hit the other glass, hit the other glass, and next thing I know, the entire tray of champagne flutes crashed, like burned. I was, <laughs> I was like, I am actually powerless to stop this. Like, literally, what the hell do I do right now? I just have to. But that was at least on me and like on the floor. There was another time there was this really like rich Russian family, and I was waiting on them, and I was again with the champagne flutes, and uh, they fell into the dad's lap. Ooh. All of no. them. Oh, fun. Oh, and then you can't exactly go with the napkin. For everyone who's listening, when you go out to brunch and it's like a 12 top, 10 top. Brunch is hell for everyone in the industry. 12 glasses of mimosas, just know that there's a waiter crying in the walk-in. Because I remember like when I was like, the champagne flutes, they're, they're the flutes. terrible. I'm done with them as a concept. They're like those classic like triangular martini glasses. You just take one step and like, like half of the vodka. Champagne flutes and trays don't mix. They need to be like... On a table, anchor like that, that thing you get all to put all your coffee cups in, you know, <laughs> anchored. Yes, you know that what? I have an invention. Yeah, weighted champagne glasses with yeah. a weight at the bottom. There, let's I do like that. There Let's do I that. Like that. Yeah. Right. Eventually, once the people get too drunk, they can't even lift it up the table. It's perfect. It's multi-purpose. Anthony Bourdain tragically passed away on June eighth, twenty eighteen. His death brought attention to the issue of mental health and highlighted the fact that mental health struggles can affect anyone, regardless of their public image or achievements. Following Bourdain's passing, there's been an increased awareness and discussion surrounding mental health in the culinary and entertainment industries. Many celebrities and professionals have opened up about their own struggles, aiming to reduce the stigma associated with mental health issues. It's so important to continue conversations about mental health awareness and provide support for those facing challenges. That's why this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And this is so important because finding a therapist can be super hard, especially when you're limited to the options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. Actually, BetterHelp was my first foray into therapy because I really wasn't sure how to get started and I had uh, experienced a really big life event. It was the first platform I turned to to demystify therapy, make it easy, and also it was very affordable. So very exciting to be able to partner with BetterHelp and spread the therapy gospel. It's something that I know you and I, Fab, really believe in and talk about often. Especially with resources like BetterHelp that makes it more accessible. I mean, we do speak so often about mental health struggles in the restaurant industry, making therapy affordable and accessible to line cooks and restaurant workers and people who might not have traditional health insurance is something that I feel so strongly about. So highly recommend society will thank you. You will thank you. Uh, you know, your family and friends will thank you. Young men, please seek therapy. It's worked wonders for me. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. One final uh, Anthony connection. Yeah, yeah, so I knew Lori Woolever, Will- mm-hmm. who's the person, you know, he, mm-hmm. who if you needed to get to Anthony, you'd reach out to mm-hmm. her. And so uh, we had a good friend, um, Skiz Fernandez, was from Sri Lanka. So I reached out. I mean, this is just a, it was fun to be able to make it happen. I reached mm-hmm. out to Lori, who reached out to Anthony, and he said, yes, let's do let's do a, 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 seri- a segment with him. So they did. They went to Sri Lanka. Oh so God. I was very happy about that. That was like, score, you know. <laughs> like that, that right there, that was me. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. I was literally supposed to go to Sri Lanka in January, but it fell through. Oh. But I'm, it, it looks so beautiful. Now I want to rewatch the, the episode. Mm-hmm. I have to have I have to ask you one last horror story question because I'm morbidly curious and fascinated. What is the worst thing that ever happened to you on live TV? Well, so many, not just one. I dropped it, I burned it. We got six dirty phone calls in six years. Yeah, I was gonna say when I was research- researching the show, 
I thought that that was such an interesting concept. And it was just very like, we like, a, like a friend calling another friend on the phone and like, what should I do with the roast chicken or blow, et cetera. But and it was real people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We got the first one in the front. So it was, this was a live, live show, not yeah. live to tape, not live audience, Just live, live. Like, and these were real people who called. So we had a couple of people, literally phones, yeah. you know, phones. I mean, I didn't pick up the phone. It came out over the loudspeaker. But the staff would, you know, field the phone calls. And after the first week, we realized we had to uh, limit the call because I'd be making hamburgers and they'd, come, they'd call in with a question about strawberries. It was a disconnect. Yeah. So we had to sort of steer them towards mm -hmm. that. But um, we had no time delay. And the very first week we got one, I was making um, eggplant rollatini. And a guy called in and he, he said, you know, teehee, teehee, how do you make eggplant a la penis? And I just said, I don't know, his, let's say his name was Ed. Yeah. Sounds like an uh, and get a life. And I was surprised. Yeah. I, I I didn't think it was, but we had five more. It was about one a year. Jeez. They got really good. So for three weeks, we didn't take any calls from mm -hmm. any men. Why are men always ruining it for the rest of us? I, yeah. Oh, I I know, I'm just really. kidding. But not just certain men. We're not the best. Yeah. I mean, I was a sitting doc. You know, when we finally got a uh, time delay, which was we, we, after one half in the evening, we gave up because it was like the old days. You guys don't know. You're too young. Of long distance phone calls to Europe mm -hmm. where you'd say hello. Hello. <sighs> I mean, can you imagine? No, the, the energy that you get with live TV just goes right out the window. Yeah. Completely. So we stopped doing that. But um, there were three fires on the show. One of them, actually, again, I wasn't there, but I love telling. So that doesn't help. But it was the second show, the 1999 second show, mm -hmm. Cooking Live Primetime. And David Rosengarten was hosting. And he had um, Andrea Immer, who is a wonderful wine woman, um, you know, expert, and a couple other people on. And David's up there cooking something. Everybody took turns cooking. And the towel under his cutting board caught fire. And so, and the boys, I just loved it because they didn't know how to handle this live show. Because you, you had to answer questions. People could call up if I was making something with peppercorns. Mm -hmm. yeah, black, say I just went bloop, bloop, bloop with a black pepper, you know, with a pepper, pepper grinder. They could call in and say, what's the difference between white, black, pink, and green? And you just have to know. I'd have to know. You probably have the most culinary knowledge out of after anyone doing, we've spoken to. After do, doing that, I had to. Yeah. And just like the, to be able to think on your feet like that and to be able to be eloquent and kind of just handle things as they – that is hard. I don't think anyone realizes how hard that is. That oh, was very – it was hard. But I, I did my homework, believe me. So let's say I'm making, you know, chicken cacciatore whatever. I'd research every part of it. So I was ready, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but at any rate, so on this David Rosengarten show, I mean, so the boys all sweated it because they, of course, did no homework. They would just go on like, I know. Like I'm a little sorry, bad we, boys of TV. Yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. It's just in my veins. Yeah, we just flambe stuff on Yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just, just need a glass of bourbon. Yeah. So at any rate, so this towel catches fire and David goes, oh, no. We need to stop tape. And one of the camera guys is saying, no, David, it's live. So Andrea, very quietly, who's sitting around the corner of the, of the counter, by the way, we had a real sink with real water, okay? Mm. But David didn't know it or forgot it or whatever. So she comes over, grabs the towel, puts it in the sink, and puts out the fire with a beautiful <laughs> bottle of Bordeaux. It was very elegant. But anyway, so we had a couple other fires when I was there. But, you know, I'd put the lid on the food processor and it gets stuck. Um, Wednesday nights, we had a cook-along. Mm -hmm. So that was truth in advertising. No prep was done. I had to do it all from scratch. And we'd have somebody cook along with me. We'd give them the grocery list. So they'd cook while I cooked. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we all got to the finish line. I noticed increasingly it would be me alone and then whoever was cooking with me and we'd show them on Skype, right? <sighs> um, they'd have like eight people helping them. <laughs> and so some nights I didn't even finish cooking the veal chop or whatever the heck it was. But of course they would have rounded it up and gotten it done. Mm -hmm. So it was it was hell every night. Um, also, I had guests who sometimes weren't nice, and my um, although most people were nice because so many people were discovered on my show. Who, who was the worst guest, and who was your favorite? I'm not going to tell you who was the worst. We'll okay, off, we'll do it privately. Off, off, 
Yes, we'll do it privately. Who is my favorite? I had Rick Moonen on a million times. Do you, you guys probably don't know him. I don't know. He's now in Las Vegas. He was the chef at Oceana. And he was just like a big kid, like mm -hmm. a five-year-old. He was just a lot of fun. So it must have been fun, like entertaining on, to watch on TV. And yeah, I mean, you know, I I have no shame. I would just ask all these questions. So I I'd say he was my favorite. Oh, well, yeah. But I, I had everybody. I mean, I did twelve hundred of those shows, wow. and then another three hundred of a taped show. But um, and we had repeats. Twelve hundred. Yeah, and I'd say of those, probably four hundred of them were with guests uh -huh. and the other 800 I did by myself but it Which was so that is that must be very intimidating right just like carrying a whole segment like for a show well no the thing is I wasn't uh -huh. alone we got I got like five phone calls tonight oh, okay. so a lot of times it would be the caller well, first of all, I'd be helping them. Uh, they'd call in with a question. Wednesday nights was a different thing. Mm -hmm. But the other nights I'd be making, you know, I don't know, chicken cacciatore. And they'd say, you know, what do the different size chickens mean? I mean, the questions you'd get now were different than the questions you got then. Mm -hmm. And it was much easier back then because it was the Wild West. People didn't know anything. Yeah, so yeah, they'd yeah. say, what, what are panko breadcrumb? You know, that was an easy one. I, and there was a lot of questions mm -hmm. like that. Now it'd be... I do the same kind of thing with Chris Kimball on Mill Street Radio, and we get calls like, I was just given a whole steer. What is the best way to cook the pest testicles? I said testicles. <laughs> the testicles. Give them a pesto. Yeah, right. At any rate, so back then they were. But I, I was never alone because I was always talking to these mm. people. And sometimes they would take me through it. So I remember one time talking to some lady in the Midwest, German background, about how to make sauerkraut you know from step one step two it also involved some sort of outhouse that mm. wouldn't explode with the aroma and the gas that is given off by sauerkraut my grandpa did it in his tiny apartment oh, and the and he made cow tongue in that apartment i mean yeah. they were the russian jews are not shy to, to smells but anyways yes 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 anyway any rate so <laughs> i was never alone um and the staff we had so much fun it was like a party every night that's fun um, like a, like a little what a party. cool yeah. career. It was, that was the best. That's my favorite, <laughs> most favoriteest job ever was the cooking live. Mm. Well, I was kind of curious because, you know, at that time, like you said, water panko breadcrumbs. Now I feel like because of like social media cooking and everything, I'm curious what your perspective is. Cause it must be nice to see people be like, I don't know, like I was at a friend's house and he likes to cook occasionally and he had like an Escoffier cookbook, right? Or, you know, and Nowadays, like everyone just knows so much about all this crazy stuff. So I'm curious, like, what is your perspective on those online cooks that just like want to share the recipes? And uh, I feel like there are a lot of. He's asking if you're on board ones. with the TikTok chefs. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, trying, yeah I'm trying to tiptoe <laughs> well, around the question. Disclosures, I said I'm going to have to yeah. start watching it because of you. Fabrizio's a good one. Okay, you talk to any old school person like mm -hmm. me, and I'm not the oldest of the old school. I only worked in restaurants for seven years, but you know. They all hate these young people. We, all, and, we yeah. all hate them yeah. because we walked five miles to school, damn it. And you <laughs> just you just picked up a knife badly and pretended you knew what you were doing. I'm not referring yeah, to you. There's a lot of it – kind of, it's almost like history repeats itself with the whole like macho flambeing. And yeah. now it's slapping steaks and being all performative. Well, well, and Well, but, but let me yeah, just say this yeah, about yeah. that. One of the things I discovered when I did the live show, because I talked to home cooks, mm -hmm. is home cooks who are serious home cooks are really no different than professional chefs. Mm. Absolutely no different because they if if they cook over and over and over again and if they perfect their dishes, they there's no better way to learn how to cook than to cook. Yeah. So having you know being having said that snobby thing about you know you guys did not do your time in kitchens. On the other hand, there's so much you can learn mm. all by yourself. I feel like I understand every viewpoint of oh, the yeah. matter like i i understand why people would be super annoyed by social media chefs and i also understand how they're doing a lot of great things for for culture but i think that at every juncture of the development of the celebrity chef there are people who have an ego there are people who mm. like recognition and fame over 
actually getting in there and doing the work. And I think that that was true back when, you know, celebrity chefs and TV chefs became a thing. And it, it remains to be true nowadays, right? Because yes. I see it, you see it on TikTok, on Instagram, because there are some people where I look at their account and I'm like, you're amazing. You you clearly, you've taken this wealth of information in front of you. You've learned how to use a knife. You, you've learned like so much stuff. You're a, you look like a chef and you, your food looks amazing. And then there's some people that I'm like, why are people watching you and learning from you? It's the old thing about entertainment versus education. Yeah. And entertainment almost always wins. So if you have a big personality and you look good on camera, you're telegenic, usually you're the one who gets ahead. Mm -hmm. I My biggest problem was, is with misinformation or doing something wrong. Also- and saying it with conviction just because you're, you know, camera in front of your face and you're like this is how you do this and then it's just so completely not the right way to do, do it, it. And or even like dangerous too, yes which is, yeah. even like dangerous like you never add alcohol to a pan when it's on the flame mm -hmm. you must take it off and yeah. do it and then bring it on and, and let don't have it... like the over the <laughs> yeah the you know the uh, what's it called? The exhaust just going, yeah. you know, or that, that's happened to me. That's I a bad think mistake. Humility goes a long way. It's it's okay to tell people you don't know something. It's okay yeah. to admit that you don't know everything. I learned that very early on because I still hesitate to call myself a chef. I didn't go to culinary school. I did line cook. Well, line cook is really is more, you know, it's, it's more organization and more credible than mm -hmm. going to cooking school. I spent so many nights crying, but um, so many, <laughs> but, and, and now I, I have a pop-up, but I still, I don't mind telling people I don't know something because I think that's a larger marker of confidence than to just pretend you know everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's do and no, no one wins when you can't admit to being wrong or to not knowing anything, right? Absolutely. And I, I, I actually read that about Julia Child. We have to talk about Julia Child. Yes. That's what Jacques Papin said. We interviewed him as well for the podcast. And he said he loved that Julia in a room full of people, if, so, if if everyone was discussing some culinary thing, she would say, I have no idea what that is. Can you can you tell me about that? And he just thought that was so cool that she was herself mm -hmm. and didn't mind not knowing things. No, she was ridiculously humble. Yeah. Let's just pause on Jacques Pepin for half a second because <laughs> Kitchen Confidential uh -huh. was really an important book. I mean, it beautifully, beautifully written um, and really did encapsulate the situation, even for me. I mean, I was in more mixed kitchens. I mean, I, there were women in my kitchens. Jacques Pepin's The Apprentice mm -hmm. is likewise one of the hands down best books that anybody who wants to become a chef should I'm read. I'm currently listening to that one. Currently. I'm Embarrassed that I haven't listened to it before. Yeah. And also I say listening because I listen to those books while cooking. I think my, the art of reading has been sort of uh, awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. Are you enjoying it? It is. So good. I love the narrator on Audible. He has a French accent. It's not super strong, but he has a French accent, so it's transportive. Jacques Pepin, my favorite quality in humans as, in general is humility. I think he's one of the most humble people. Oh, yeah. my God. he's And it know, comes across. There will never be another Julia. There will never be another Jacques. And mm -hmm. both of them are that, you know, yeah. very, very humble. People that make you feel comfortable regardless of what they've accomplished, how much money they have, how much fame they have, those are the greatest, most grounded people. And I feel like they really share those qualities, at least from what I can tell from, I don't know Julia, but from what I've heard of her and even just our short time mm -hmm. speaking with Jacques. Yeah. Well, I think one of my favorite quotes that I'm paraphrasing uh, from Jacques, um, it's him and Tony during some interview. And Tony starts talking about like, uh, Jacques, what is your favorite, or what is your biggest guilty pleasure meal? He's like, and then Tony goes on to say, you know, I'll, I'll put on a hoodie head down and I'll go to Popeye's to get their, you know, neon orange slop that is, you know, the most delicious thing in the world. And then, and then he's, he asks Jock, he's like, what is your guilty pleasure meal? And he goes, well, Tony, there's a difference between you and I. I feel no shame or guilt. <laughs> and, then he, and then he just starts talking about like, I love Oreos, I love Fig Newtons, I love Jello, this, this, and that. And that, because I, I didn't really grow up eating the, you know, the, uh, grew up eating out of a box or jar or whatever it was. And I feel like in the culinary space, there can be that sort of pretentious air where everything has to be. Can be? You know, oh, my God. Yeah. There is it's, so much of The that. snobbery. Yeah. Even like what's crazy, too, even on the internet with these people that aren't chefs technically yeah. or, or whatever it is, like the snobbery with the home cook, too. It's transcendent but to the home. You know what I always say? I think that people who need to rely on fancy best ingredients and or the most expensive versions of things, I'm not saying this is always true, but I think that sometimes that to me denotes a lack of personal taste mm -hmm. because if you, you know, if you can sit here and be like the Popeye's mac and cheese is the greatest thing ever, I don't care if people think I 
you know, that that's your personal taste. And I feel like that's probably very pervasive in the fashion world as well. But being able to develop your own personal taste means you're okay with putting a cube of ice in a glass of red wine because it doesn't matter and that's how you like it. And yeah. that's way cooler than being obsessed with the right way or the best way. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. On that note, Julia Child loved McDonald's french fries so and good. wished that they still cooked them in beef fat. Julia Child played a really important role in your life and career. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. How much time do you have? I really, I would never be where I ended up if it wasn't for her. I, I mean, I was just one of those classic right places, right times. Mm -hmm. I met her in Cambridge in 1978. It was because somebody, I was the chef manager of a catering operation and somebody who worked for me was a volunteer on Julia's show. One day we were, I hated catering. I don't like doing volume cooking. Ew. Catering's so hard. And it's really hard. Anybody who does it really well, I have so much respect for them. But anyway, we were peeling a million hard boiled eggs. And I started talking about how Julia, and we must have cooked it the way Julia does, which was not the way I do it now. Now I steam them. Mm. But back then, you put them in cold water. This is what she did. You bring it up to a boil, you take it off, you leave the lid on, and she gave it way too long, I think 15 minutes. But at any rate, and then you take it out and you put it in ice water. I mean, she did other things because Julia sometimes made things a little more complicated than they needed to be. <laughs> she'd stick it with a pin to provide a little air. I don't know. But at any rate, we started talking about it. And this young woman I was talking Whole to- Whole situation. Um, said she was a volunteer on Julia's show. Uh, you know, public television show it. And I said, oh, hmm, do you think she'd like another volunteer? And she said, let me ask her. So um, she comes back the next day and she says, I talked to Julia and she wants to hire you. I said, pardon? She wants to pay me? Why? She said, I don't know. She said, I told her all about you and she was very impressed. Go call, you know, go call her. So I go down the cor corner pay phone. This friend. is 1978, you know. Because I didn't want to do it in the office at the kids you know. these days don't have to use payphones. They don't know what that's like to walk to a payphone. I know there's so many things. Brats. I mean, what's a record? For example, my husband. We have three thousand records, and young people today just don't know about. Records. They're like, that's a cool decoration for my Williamsburg loft. Yeah, yeah I can exactly. Put that on my on my coffee table. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You two are very young too. But anyway, so <laughs> we're kind of making fun of ourselves a little bit too. I'm sure it's all right. It's all right. I mean, we're all on the same team. So I went down and called her up, and she gets right on the phone. She was listed, so you could call her. Particularly on Thanksgiving, people would call her, you know, with those dreadful questions. My turkey's been in the heated garage for three days. Do you think it's still okay to cook? Yes, Stop. if you would like to murder your entire family. Right, or <laughs> order out for pizza. But <laughs> any rate, so she gets right on the phone and she says, hello, dearie, I've heard all about you. Do you food style? Now, this is 1978. Food styling was not the codified art that it is now. Mm. And so I had to do some really quick thinking. I was like, well, let me see. The last restaurant I worked at, they said that I did a really good job garnishing each plate. I just did cold poached decorated salmon for 700. That looked pretty good. Um, hey, I used to do watercolors in high school. Don't ask me what that has to do with anything. So I lied. I said, yes, I'm really good. So I got hired. The backstory is mm -hmm. because I'd gone to the CIA, she thought I'd probably learned um, food styling. And this was a three-month gig, which is so odd on public television because now I have a public television show. That's not how you do it. Mm -hmm. But back then, they worked three days a week for three months. I have no idea why. And they developed the recipes as they went along, which is That's something. That's crazy. Julian wow. Jock did it when they did their show, too. I was like, yeah. Why? Jeez. I know. I'm yeah. the room for error. Rosie Minnell came and did all the food styling, but Rosie couldn't make it till midway. Mm. So Julia needed a backup. We weren't just doing the show. We were also doing a cookbook to go with it. And unbeknownst to me, we were developing the recipes as we went along. So did you, did you get credited in the, in the cookbook? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. They had pictures of all of us. Yeah. So here's the other funny thing. Unbeknownst to me, she hired somebody else to do the same job as well. Because she, that's how nervous she was. Mm -hmm. Marion Morash, who happened to be married to Russell Morash, who was the director. So Marion and I, the first day, look at each other like, who are you? Who are you? We managed to bumble through. I had finally gotten the job I really wanted, concurrent with getting the job with Julia. So I was the chef of a restaurant, a little restaurant mm -hmm. in Boston in Faneuil Hall. And so I started both of those jobs at the same time. So I worked seven days a week. Um, for the three months, but I could only work Mondays and Wednesdays for Julia, so I missed Tuesdays. 
And remember, we were developing the recipes. So things would change by the time I came in on Wednesday. And I'd come in and I'd say to Marion, so I'd start prepping it the way we were doing it on Monday because Marion never filled me in. Somebody on the staff noticed that perhaps there was a little friction. Maybe it'd be a good idea to give everybody a title. And so Julia gave us all titles. They were all executive titles. So uh, Marion was the executive chef, and I was the executive associate chef. And after that, Marion never didn't tell me the changes in the recipes again. And I was fine with that. It made complete sense for her to be the chef. Um, I mean, in charge. Yeah. And Marion and I became good friends, and I ended up working on Victory oh. Garden Cookbook and her show. And it was a good moment, but it was just yeah. typical Julia that she couldn't do that. It was really fun. Every day we sat down for lunch. We'd eat probably usually the stuff we were making. And we'd set up long tables. We had a woman named Temmie Hyde, whose job it was. By the way, the name of the show was called Julia Child and More Company. Mm -hmm. I think we shot, I don't know, 12 episodes. I don't remember. any rate, so Temmie was her job as a volunteer to set the tables. We would have cloth, tablecloths, cloth napkins, flatware, not plasticware. We'd start with a little aperitif. We'd have a little vermouth. You're very good at this. Yeah, this is very good. I don't know, but you know what? Like you you said, you don't know sometimes if what you talk about, Anthony, if he'd appreciate what you say. I'm not sure she'd like me imitating her. But she can't help it, you know? And then we would have wine with lunch. So after lunch, things moved very yes. slowly. So I understand that in subsequent years, there was no wine at lunch anymore. Mm. That was the end of it. But sense. it was really fun because there would be like a rotating, people would come visit while we were cooking. And um, I, Julia ended up one day, this chef came to visit from France. Mm -hmm. He had a one-star restaurant in um, Chartres, France. Anyway, before I knew it, she signed me up for an apprenticeship with him for three months in France, or two months in France. Did you do that? I did. And it was wild. <laughs> Turns out the guy was, I mean, so what else is new with the French guys? A dirty old man. Uh, and he just saw me as a possibility to, you know. He's like, yes, I want an apprentice. Yeah. yeah come to yeah. France. Uh, it would have been different. He was cute, but he was short, fat, bald, and ugly. And were you married at the time? Uh -oh. oh, no, I wasn't. I had a boyfriend who, I mean, who's now my husband, who I adored. But he was married. And I was working for with him and his wife she worked at the restaurant and his daughter and um i was like this is awkward I was so it didn't even stop him though from being a trying a tale as old as time i do want to ask you what is your favorite thing that julia ever made that you tried i don't know if i could pick one thing and she didn't make it we made it um oh i have to tell you one story yes, this one's do. a shorter one yeah, yeah. so here's the thing we would make three backups for every single thing she made at every single stage. French onion soup day, okay? Which involved eight cups of sliced onions. The amount of crying that went down. Yeah, so times three for step one, put them in the pan. For times three for step two, they're golden. Then step three, they're really golden. And then so on and mm -hmm. so forth. So there was, you know, and what we would do, Marion and I would set up tray after tray after tray behind her. So if we needed to do a retake, which I don't think we ever did, not once, she could just reach behind and bring it up. And so, okay, so we're all set up for the French. And you're right, there's a lot of crying going on. <laughs> and Julia starts with the baguette, you know, because you're going to make the croutons, mm -hmm. right? So she holds up two. And one was a Wonder Bread version, or maybe I should just say a floppy bread version, because <laughs> we got to be careful about saying mean things about brands and she holds him <laughs> up and sure enough the floppy one flops yeah and she said first you're going to start with the right bread and this one goes <laughs> flop and she said and this one you can see has no integrity it's disgusting so she takes it and she throws it behind her back and marion and i are like holy shit is she going to wipe out, you know, all the prep we just did? And so the thing sailed over tray after tray after tray. With the tray. whole baguette? Yes, the whole oh. thing. It's like a boomerang going over all our trays. It could have wiped them all out, but it just made it over the top and then wrapped itself around a bottle of wine, beautiful red wine. Yeah. A can seems to be a theme in the corner. And Marion and I both 
exhaled. But I mean, that's she was a wild woman. You never yeah. knew what she was going to do. And she made a point of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So she was great because of her. You know, I started working at Good Morning America with mm-hmm. her. And then because of that, I got hired as their executive chef doing all the prep for all the chefs. Mm-hmm. So I did that from 86 to 96. And because of that, I think that's why the Food Network approached me to run their kitchen, which I said, no, I don't want to because I had a good job at Gourmet with benefits. But then that's how I ended up doing on air. Also, she when I moved to New York, she helped me get a job at my dream restaurant. Which restaurant was that? Well, it wasn't my first choice, but I I will say in the end, it was the best restaurant for me. It was a restaurant called La Tulipe. Hmm. It's no longer. Um, It was a woman chef, actually, Sally Dar. And she was extraordinary. I probably learned more from her than anybody else, including Hmm. Jacques and Julia. She was really good, and she wasn't trained. But I interviewed with... Andre Saltner, Alain Sayak, all the old French chefs. Well, they weren't old back then. They were old-ish. But, of course, they wouldn't hire me because I was a mere female, yeah. although I became friends with them in, in recent years. But back then, no, they wouldn't. T- you know, they did it because Julia asked them to. But anyway, she opened so many doors. It's, it's, it's just crazy how that snowballed from the, from the one chance. And that's why that's such a lesson. You have to just ask for things that— Well, I was going to yeah. hammer on that word— lie like when that, yeah. you know when there's an uh, an opportunity that comes to you and you're like you know i, I can figure this out as i go and well that's trust what, yourself I, I think and, that just get your foot in the door yeah, and then prove yeah. yourself but that's what jacques was it jacques or jeremiah i can't remember but we were talking about the concept of hospitality it was jeremiah the answer is yes and then you figure it out and he was talking yeah. he told like a, a cute story about how he wanted an umbrella he was at some beach bar in thailand and he asked if there was an umbrella i guess it was really sunny and they were like yes and then like 30 minutes later, someone came with a, a, a palm tree or something. Yeah, or like a, a banana tree. A banana tree. And, and, and they sand. just figured it out, even though that's not. So anyways, I would say that that's a very, it's less of a lie and more of a challenge to yourself. Right. And I think it's a good advice to give. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with both of you. So you heard it here. Sarah's telling all kids to get out of school, do whatever you want. <laughs> and lie. And, and <laughs> <laughs> lie there to everyone, go. especially here parents. You go. Yes. Fake it till you make it, but you have to actually... Mm-hmm. Have some skills behind that. Favorite dish that you've ever made on one of your shows? Oh. We're talking about thousands of episodes, so it's okay yeah. if there's not just one. Oh, geez. I, I really, I'm drawing a blank because, you know, when I did the cooking live thing, we I did three to four recipes a night, you know, multiply that. Was there anything, especially because it's a live show, which is such an interesting thing, you know, you take a bite and it's, you just you don't like it. And you're like, mm, make this at home, America. Like you're like you're really hiding. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Behind. One of the things I used to say, not because I didn't like it, yeah. but because I screwed it up somehow. Yeah. You know, I'd look in the camera and mm-hmm. say, "You'll do better than I do." That's, but that's <laughs> so charming. Everyone wants to know that people. Well, listen. F up. If Julia Child could screw up on national TV, mm-hmm. you know, I figured so could I. Yeah. And if I don't mind screwing up on national TV, why should you worry about what you do in the privacy of your own kitchen? Yeah. You know, as Julia said, (laughs) what's the most famous thing? And we all thought she dropped a turkey on the floor and picked it up and looked in the camera and said, remember, you're alone in the kitchen. It wasn't a turkey. (laughs) Apparently, I think it was she was making a crepe or an omelet and some of it went on the burner. But she looked Mm. in the camera and said, remember, you're alone in the kitchen. And that is so true. And there's almost one thing I can think of that you can't. Oh, no, two. One of them is mashed potatoes if you do them in the food processor. You can't fix it. That's that's wallpaper glue. But the other one is if you burned it. You can say you smoked it, but nah, I don't think I ha- so. I had a funny experience experience at my pasta pop-up years ago when I, we first started doing the raviolo alo ovo, which is a notoriously kind of difficult dish to nail. It's, it's, tell, tell us about it because it's got an egg inside. Yes. So it's basically we hand make it the day of the event. It's in the summer. The filling is sweet corn and chive, but it varies seasonally. And there is a gorgeous amber egg yolk in the center. It's covered. And then you have to boil it. And here's the thing. You're, we, we serve 26 people. So you have to make sure the boiling time is enough so that while it continues steaming and cooking as we plate it, as we sauce it, it doesn't overcook. Mm. And I am a very, I'm like, the story about you saying like, yes, I've got this and yes, I can food style. That is so me. And or in the early days of the pop-up, I told Sarah like, yes, we can do this. I can do this. Totally. It's fine. And we practiced it, but we only practiced making one. Oh, um, dear. Yes. So cooking timing wise, we were like, and, and it didn't even occur to me. And this is a few years ago. When we went to serve our paying customers at the pop-up, they were eating fucking hard-boiled eggs. Really? Oh. 
It was okay. Hard oh, but okay, but that's rule number two. Never apologize. Never explain. Okay, so that's what I told. <laughs> okay, I love this. This is so. This is all working out. It was a jammy egg. So I was like, Sarah. Sarah's in the corner, like freaking out. And I was like, Sarah, here's the thing. It doesn't taste bad. And and we're gonna. You know what? There's. A st I'm making up a story. And I was like, just go with it. We walk out there. I'm so sorry if anyone who went to that dinner is listening right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we walk out there, and I was like, so the ravioli ovo is the Goldilocks of the pasta world for me. And you know, I know a lot of people like their eggs sunny side up, but to me, that's gross. I don't really need the runniest egg. You know what? But I also don't really like hard-boiled eggs. For me, the jammy egg yolk is this illustrious, hard-to-achieve hard texture. And so today, we're taking, we're doing our take on the ravioli alo ovo with a jammy yolk, a perfect texture, a couple, and I just like made up a bunch of stuff, and everyone loved it. The excellent, end. excellent, brilliant. No, that, that that is just absolutely. I mean, I have a magnet on my refrigerator with Julia in it that my niece made for me mm -hmm. that says "Never apologize, never explain," because people. You're talking about the restaurant industry, and you were brilliant right there. But thank um, you. When you're at home and cooking, and people come over, you know, and you're professional and you have your pride. You, I mean, to this day, even I have to control myself because I want to say. Oh, I didn't add enough salt. That oh, that wasn't acid. as good. Oh my god, me too. I'm so yeah, and this. they're just so happy you cooked and they didn't. Yeah. Don't ruin their meal. It's the best thing you ever made. Mm. You know. And they, they're probably going to notice. And like, and and so much of cooking and so much of the hospitality experience really is the experience yeah. of it. So Amen. people are not going to remember the exact that dish was undersalted. They're going to be like, that was so much fun. Those girls were we were having such a great time and laughing. There was all this wine and. That's going to be what people remember, right. but it's definitely hard to not apologize for yourself or be hard on yourself. And, and I think that's something a lot of people in the culinary industry well, share. Emily was there for what was it, my twenty fifth birthday? I it was amazing. Like 15, he made like every salsa and every single thing from scratch. It was crazy. I was, but it was the first time I'd ever cooked for like an abundance of people. And Which I remember, is hard. I mean, yeah. it was my birthday too, and everyone was like, "Oh, let's sing him happy birthday." I was like in the back of the kitchen, just like staring at everyone, like is everyone. Eating is there food in their mouths? Meanwhile, I definitely texted you the next day and said the food was incredible, and I had the best. I had the best time. Well, I appreciate that, everyone. I hope you heard that. Everyone, <laughs> yes, you heard it here nice. first. But they, that's a great thing that you've done in your careers. Sort of, um, you know, bring confidence to like the home cook or anyone who's watching. Cause well, I certainly learned from Julia. So, yeah. and back to where we started here, the best way to learn how to cook is to cook. Yeah. You know, it's just, just do it and you'll learn. You just can't it's help a, it. Yeah. It's hopefully usually delicious trial and error process. And even if it's not, you learn something. And I feel you like do. you have, you just have this lovely, you, you have this lovely way about you and just watching some of your episodes and watching you, you cook, you make it okay to just learn and experiment. That's so important for people to remember, especially because I think that historically the culinary industry has seemed really intimidating to people. Mm. Oh, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one good thing that I think is arisen from the TikTok yeah, and I Instagram agree. chef. I if agree. we can do it, you can. There's so many different versions of the culinary industry. And I feel like one of the reasons Anthony Bourdain was so beloved was because he would revere the Vietnamese noodle stall and the, you know, the street vendor as much as he would a gorgeous prefix at Le Bernardin. And it kind of allowed people to, A, feel proud of their cooking and their food and their cultures, not feel embarrassed to try things. And that's interesting because we were just talking about how you're get, you get people to try cooking and, and learn how to cook all the time. So if you had to summarize Bourdain's greatest impact on you, what would that be? It would be exactly that. I mean, watching his shows that he would take you to the street food. I mean, I worked at Gourmet Magazine for um, 25 years. Oh, dear. Well, at any rate, it was, it was a food and travel magazine. Mm. So we knew about a lot of the things that he was talking about, but most people didn't, you know, and for the longest time, the French in particular had a grip uh, on this country with French cuisine is the it cuisine. And we weren't, I'm mean, not that regionally there weren't all the other cuisines happening, but they weren't celebrated. Mm -hmm. And by him going around the world and talking about these foods and tasting these foods and describing them, I think he really made Americans more aware of all the other cuisines we should be eating. So that was, uh, you know, really, he brought it down yeah. to everyday people. He, he made the, you know, more niche and lesser known cuisines less intimidating in much the same way that people like Julia Child and you and Jacques Pepin have made um, cooking less intimidating because his focus was, as much as he was a chef, a cook, 
his focus wasn't that. I think that, mm. you know. And he was such a great storyteller. Yeah. Such a great story. I mean, I love reading his, you know, just reading that little story about that nightmare on a New Year's Eve when everything headed south. He's just so funny and so interesting. Yeah, you're even um, in his cookbook, Appetites, like the little the little written segments where you're like, you, you can't, like there's just no other cookbook that has like these like little quippy things or these like intense little stories or anecdotes or silly little lines. Very honest in the way he wrote. Yeah. And that's another thing about Julia. Julia was... You're not going to, I mean, I, you may think so. You may not think so. She's one of the funniest people I ever mm. met. I mean it. And it was really just because she'd call it for what it was. She'd see right through it and just say, but that's, you know, emperor's new clothes sort of thing. I mean, she was never rude. She mm. was had great manners, but she was a riot. And I think he was similar in that he just talked for what it is and yeah. said it for what it was, including about himself. You know? I love that. It's another favorite quality of humans. There's no way to make money in our industry anymore. No way. It's yeah. really, really hard. And what you guys do is one of the ways you can. And that's fine, and I get it. But for me, the way I saw it is, why would anybody believe anything I say mm -hmm. if I've been paid to say it? Yeah. If I've been paid to say something about this product, why would they believe it when I say something else? Mm -hmm. So so for the longest time when I was on the Food Network, I would mention products by, by, by name. But because I like them. Yeah. But, yeah. Then, but then the Food Network would say, no, you can't do that. They don't They don't pay us for you to say that. And I definitely understand the concept of not wanting someone else to exploit your name and make money. And, and it's interesting. Honestly, that's something that we, we maybe have to think about and grapple with. We are hosting an, a, a podcast that is centered around the premise of Anthony Bourdain, mm -hmm. someone we've never met and are not friends with. And that's what's, you know – I don't know if selling the podcast is the word, but it's it's interesting because there's some there's a level of that that is something to think about. Well, no, I think there's nothing wrong with this. This to me is a whole different ball game because you're celebrating a great person who mm. did a great thing, who was really unique. But, there's nothing wrong with that, and having you know fascinating conversations with people who knew him. Yeah, and you know, you come up with all sorts of interesting things. It really is such an honor and such a it's so fun. Well, we need to ask you. Uh, one last question that we ask all our guests. Oh, dear. I'm scared. Oh, no. Well, is this my last meal? No. <laughs> no, but that actually is one of my favorite questions, but I think it's overdone now, so I've stopped. Where were you when you found out about Anthony Bourdain's passing and, you know, how did that impact you? It was pretty devastating. You know, also because we all wondered why. I mm. think we have a better idea now. I, I don't know. You know, I won't even wade in there, but I think I have a much better idea. I, and so that was it, really, like, Oh my God, you know, he was a dark individual. And, but really, you know, you had to do that. And the fact that it, Eric was not there and was not the person who found him, but that Eric was there mm -hmm. and they were so close. It was really devastating. I was in Boston and actually back to how I give everybody a hard time. So when Ming Tsai, who was discovered on my show, had his East Meets West show on the Food Network, I used to rib him all the time. Ming, you never have any women on your show as guests. You got to do something about that. And he didn't, I don't know how much, he didn't do it that much back then. But then when he had his own show, he started inviting more mm -hmm. women on. So I was on his show several times. So I was in Boston about to do his show. And so we did the show and then we ended up toasting uh, Anthony and oh. just saying what a sad, sad thing that was. So, you know, I, there's all sorts of reasons that people take their own lives. But I, I will say, having dipped in that world a bit, celebrity corrupts and it's really hard. Mm. So if that was the last straw <coughs> along with other things, I don't know. It finally it got to him. And just like all the traveling too, I yeah. guess. It's a, it just like throws you can off. be a lonely life. And obviously yeah. we don't we don't really speculate and know anything. Bridging the gap relationship. I think social media is another interesting iteration of experiencing a life where people think they know you mm -hmm. and it can feel lonely and parasocial and things like that. And I um I think that impacted celebrity chefs for a while and and people and TV personalities, and I'm sure you understand that. You know, it's funny you say that. I knew Rachel Ray back when she was on the Food Network and, matter of fact, sort of mentored her a little bit, although I also was sort of jealous of her because then she sort of took over. But then she asked me on her show in 2010, or, you know, Rachel Ray, she had a regular. I went on the show. I was like, okay, I can do this. So I went on the show, and I really liked her, and I thought, oh, I want to be friends. 
And then I realized, and she's always so friendly and so mm. nice. I've now been on a million times. But then I thought, I don't know if she has time for friends. I'm sure she does. But that's such an interesting point and yeah. probably true. And by the way, my my single experience on the Rachel Ray show was when I caught a towel on fire and it was there was an audience. And Sarah, my business partner, and Rachel continued cooking, and I took the towel behind me and put it in the sink and turned on the water. And I got a lot of comments like, wow, that was – because some people didn't even notice that it happened. You, you. (laughs) I mean, really. Uh, But sorry, I just have to throw in my Rachel Ray anecdote. But yeah. That's wonderful. It's like everyone aspires to this level of success and fame and things. And then once you're there – not that I know this personally, but just seeing other people go through it, it's lonely at the top, as they say. No, absolutely is. Well, I think I even – Heard an interview with you where you were explaining your daily schedule, and I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like that is it was a seven a.m. show, then take the kids to school to get back, do the three p.m. show, start dinner, finish dinner, go to the next show." And I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, where is there time for a life in that? I had, I still have an excellent husband. Yeah. When the Food Network suggested that I do this live call-in show, which meant I wouldn't be home mm-hmm. any night until eight fifteen during the work week. I went to him. I said, I can't. The kids were nine and five. I said, I can't do this. Mm. He said, no, you must. We love him. We do. Oh. We do. Yeah. So it re- that really yeah. helps. Yeah, that was a crazy time. I couldn't do it now. Now I can't cook and talk at the same time. <laughs> Forget about it. Yeah. So that is, that's an art. Well, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Yeah. This is a really thrilling conversation. Talking. You're going to get me watching TikTok, okay? Yeah, gonna, yeah. So, we're going to have to sit here. You're going to have to show me how to sign so up. So everyone, please follow Sarah on TikTok. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna try to make sure we get your correct username. And I'm very excited to borrow this book. And Fabrizio, yeah. I'll share with you. Please, yeah, yeah. please do. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll, bring, we'll give it back to you. And then maybe, I don't know, who knows, maybe we can have dinner together. Cook. Oh, Sounds like fun. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Friends of Anthony Bourdain. You can listen along wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review. Let us know if there's someone you're dying for us to interview on the pod. And be sure to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all the social media platforms at Friends of Anthony Bourdain.